Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by CommercialAgentSuccess.com. It is the ultimate in commercial agent training. Visit CommercialAgentSuccess.com. Well, there's a lot of curiosity in the world today about commercial real estate and the impacts of COVID, the impacts of increasing taxes, the impacts of possible 1031 exchange being limited or eliminated, uh, the impact of work from home and what's happened there with office and retail. What should we expect moving forward? We'll have a treat for you. My guest is Victor Kalinog. He's head of commercial real estate economic at Moody's Analytics. Victor, good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me once again, and I'm happy to be here. Great. Well, I don't know where to start. There's so much going on in the commercial real estate world, but I think I'd like to start with, you know, Biden came out last week and talked about a bunch of tax changes, and, and I guess we all knew it was coming down the pike. Maybe we all were kind of ready for the increase in corporate rates, uh, the income tax rates, the, uh, the, the capital gains rates increases, and uh, maybe we've adjusted for that. Tell me what you think, but my first question for you is, the 1031 exchange. You know, you're talking about limiting that to 500,000. If that really happens, what do you think the impact would be on the commercial real estate world? Well, that's a great question and a great set of questions, actually. And that's a lot to unpack there, but let's take it one at a time. Number one, to your point, there's a lot of uncertainty just because the 1031 exchange has been such a stalwart, has been around for so long when it comes to just property investing. And understandably, a lot of folks will have questions about what will happen when it goes away. Well, number one, it's not going away completely if this proposal does materialize in its current form, right? It will be limited to profits of $500,000 or less, which actually, I wonder, in the short run means it might spur more activity and more properties changing hands as folks avoid declaring more than $500,000 of profits, right? So in the short run, we might be surprised at a somewhat counterintuitive result. It's not going to have a chilling effect necessarily for investing in properties. It might actually spur a lot more activity or certainly shorter hold periods. So you're not taking a look at five to seven years before you roll it over. Once you get to that break point of $499,999, you go and say, okay, it's time to sell. Let's move that forward. So that's one possible counterintuitive result. The other thing I did want to mention is for a lot of just institutional and professional investors, of course, 1031 exchanges and other tax minimization policies are important. But I don't think it's the biggest factor when it comes to whether or not they allocate capital to commercial real estate. Other factors like what are the true long-term prospects of investing in retail or investing in office or investing in multifamily mean these days? And I think those are the bigger questions that we'll need to really work through. Now, I'm not saying that the 1031 exchange is trivial. But I do want to see how it plays out because even now you can imagine how other industry associations are gearing up to fight that proposal or change it around on the margins. Back to you. Okay. Well, if you looked in your crystal ball with all these associations, I mean, the 1031 has been around for 100 years. Obviously, there's a reason for it. It's really helped the economy, jobs, neighborhoods, farmers, investors of all size ranges. 
Uh, I know it puts a lot of liquidity in the market, a lot of construction jobs, a, a lot of increased property tax. There's just the the list of of the benefits of the 1031 are, are incredible. So what do you think? And then, and as you mentioned, a lot of the associations or most all of them are really gearing up. I just talked to a ho of the, the hotel association. They're really gearing up. They're really concerned about what it does to small business. What do you, crystal ball, what do you think the chances of it happening? I know it's been on the chopping block for many before at times. Yeah, I, I, depending on the mood of where we are with policy these days, I'd say it might stand a greater chance of happening if industry associations really didn't lift a finger to get it done, right? It's, as you noted, it's just that general mood of, okay, increasing corporate taxes to help finance the kind of spending or investment in infrastructure and education that this administration seems to want to do. And so, now, with that said, there's that countervailing factor of, okay, then, well, the industry associations are going to try to amend this, right? I'd say they're right to be sharpening their pencils at this point in time, because as you noted, there are other alternative places where you could put your capital these days, whether it's new tech, whether it's equity markets, whether it's gosh, name the asset class that isn't rising in valuations at this point in time, right? Name it, crypto, Bitcoin, so on and so forth. And so to your point, the 1031 exchange's long-term effect has been to keep capital in commercial real estate, supporting economic activity in terms of supporting jobs and related property types. Then we have to face the question, you wipe that out on the margin, where will that capital go? And will it still remain in commercial real estate? And I think that's the big question. Yeah. Of all the other tax increases, um, the corporate tax increase, what is it going from 21 to 28% potentially, um, the increase in uh, federal income tax? But one that kind of hits me uh, is the increase in capital gains tax. What do you think the impact could be there? Well, almost the same effect, right? It's in the beginning before any, let's say that it just gets passed in its current form, right? In the beginning, I suspect that if it's a net negative for transaction activity, there might be a buildup of transaction volume right before it goes into effect, right? So there's that counterintuitive effect of, oh gosh, let's, let's, let's make sure that we capitalize on the current environment before it shifts against our favor. But over the long run, again, I think as a nation, we have to start thinking about where else will capital go. And usually capital goes to where there's less of a tax burden, right? Usually holding all else equal. Now, what makes the United States such an interesting case is that from a demographic and economic point of view, the risk-adjusted returns on capital still tends to be higher in the U.S., whether it's you know, more transparent capital markets. So you can take your money out a little bit more easily than if you insert name of country here, put your money there, right? Now, okay, does that mean that we can take advantage of that general favor towards the United States for where capital ought to go? Up to a point maybe, but at what point do we simply, do we simply impose a tax burden on capital and force them to look for other alternatives. I think that's the question that very, very few people are able to answer correctly in an age where capital is simply increasingly more mobile. And a lot of folks are smarter about the alternatives out there. I, 
I think in general, I'd be very, very careful about imposing anything on this economy at a time when the recovery appears very strong, but not 100% certain, right? And so I think for the administration, the tension is, yes, we need to finance our investments using some other means, but do we do it too soon, too much? And do we arrest activity because of it? And I, I think they're struggling with that right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I guess we'll see what happens there. And you mentioned that it could cause a, a surge in, in activity uh, in commercial real estate uh, sales volume. You know, I'm an investment sales broker, and I think I'm seeing that surge in most Are every right sector. Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's pretty crazy the amount of capital and buyers and, and the amount of 1031 money that, that's really out there looking for for places to invest, you guys track the, the the sales all around the country. Are you seeing it? Uh, uh, so here we are, May twenty twenty one. Are you seeing sales activity kind of ramp up here? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, it took a bit of a dip in the second quarter of last year. Surprise! Economic lockdowns tend to do that, but it has bounced back quite significantly since then. We're still finalizing our Q1 numbers, and it looks like, you know, it's flat to slightly up versus the Q4 figure from 2020. But gosh, make no mistake, this is a very different kind of quote-unquote downturn, right? This isn't the kind of slow-moving, gosh, depressed transaction volume for a year or two or two and a half from the great financial crisis days, right? It This feels a lot more like a natural disaster that hit us in the second quarter of last year, and then economic activity, transaction activity in particular, simply bounced back after we reopened the economy. You got to give me some credit here. I have not used the word unprecedented yet, and we've been chatting for more than 10 minutes, right? But it really was an interesting, unique situation, right? I mean, I'll confess, the forecast that I myself put out this time last year called for much more of an Armageddon-style look at where the economy was going, right? Slow recovery, what's the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to a pandemic? And I, I confess, I am not sure there were a lot of folks out there looking at their crystal ball saying GDP for the U.S. would grow by 6.4% mm-hmm. this year in 2021, a number we haven't seen in over 50 years. Yeah. I don't know how many people actually remember clearly living through a time when the U.S. economy grew by 6.4%, right? Well, that's, of course, I'm speaking for you and me because we're young guys. Then there (laughs) might be some slightly older guys out there who remember the mid to late 1970s. But wow, what what a bounce back. And uh, you tell me, how busy are you these days? Yeah, I mean, we're getting 14 to 15 offers on properties uh, competing or getting you know, 40 to 50 confidentiality agreements and just, you know, multiple rounds of, of uh, best and finals on, on a federal leased office, on multifamily, um, on uh, industrial, obviously, on single tenant net lease, all those property types just off the charts popular. And, and uh, so it, it's an incredible amount of capital out there. And, and you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of optimism uh, in the market right now and, and with everyone and we're all, you know, tired of being at home. We want to go out and spend the money that we've saved up, right? Or, or, or maybe the government gave us. How does that relate in your mind to the office market, this, the regular office market with the 
worked from home. You know, obviously you guys are tracking the market. There's a lot of vacancy in the office world, a lot of sublease space. Um, what do you think happens moving forward in the office world? That's a great question because that's one property type with a possible exception of retail, right? Where this crisis certainly helped accelerate a lot of the trends that were present before COVID. We were introducing flexible work arrangements even before this crisis. But wow, did COVID really put it into fast forward, right? I'd like to say that a lot of so-called enlightened employers gave you that speech that they were flexible with work arrangements and so on and so forth. But by and large, if you really wanted a fast-moving career, you would likely be best served if you showed up in the office physically close to where major executive decisions were being made, right? Right now, I am not sure what the post-COVID world will look like from a nature of work point of view. I suspect that a lot of employers and employees are having conversations to try and figure that out. With that said, I am not sure I'm also forecasting the end of office space like some pundits appear to be doing. Here's the basic question. It's very, very hard to figure out whether hybrid work or the home office is truly a substitute for formal office space or if it's actually a complement to certain types of office space. And let me outline what I mean using an analogy that's not perfect, but I think would be useful. When automated teller machines, ATMs, were introduced in the banking industry early on, everyone basically said this would be a substitute to physical bank tellers, right? Folks handing out cash in banks. Why would you even need bank tellers if you've literally mechanized that function? In the beginning, what ended happening was it was true the number of bank tellers employed fell as the number of ATM installations rose. But guess what happened? The bank teller's job actually adapted. It got modified. And now when you walk into a bank and you face someone across the window, they don't just hand you your cash. They give you investment advice. They direct you to a relationship manager. They offer other financial products. Is your kid insured or not? Have you even thought about insuring your kid? So the job actually evolved. And once you take a look at the breakpoint in the early 90s, the number of bank tellers employed today exceeds that of when the ATMs were first introduced, but it didn't eclipse the number of ATMs being introduced. So it became complements, right? And so I wonder if in the future, if office managers and owners and developers are able to truly clarify the benefits that we would get from commuting and spending time away from our families and actually motivate us to return to a formal office. I, I really wonder whether or not net-net, it would actually mean a net increase in both inventory and values of offices. Oh, the one last thing I wanted to share was, look, the intensity of office space usage has been in decline since the 1980s. You remember this rule of thumb, right? If you're to open a new office in some other city and you had 100 employees, how many square feet should you allocate per employee? The rule of thumb used to be two to 300 square feet per employee, right? I think that's still bandied around these days. But in reality, it actually fell to around half that. So if you divide actual occupied office space divided by office using employees, however which way you estimate it, it's around 125 square feet. And if you ask some young people, sure, maybe the CEO's office is 300 square feet, but my cubicle is more like 40 square feet, right? right. And so 
that's the, in other words, the intensity of office space users has been falling for at least 40 years. But by and large, unless you take a look at recessionary periods, the value of office per square foot has been rising, right? And so, you know, I wonder if COVID will lead to some kind of geographic reallocation, maybe from super dense CBDs to nearby suburban offices. God knows suburban offices need a hand, right? They've kind of been languishing for the last 15 to 20 years. I wonder if this crisis will take a lot of shine away from CBDs. But even that, I'm really not sure I'd bet for because as far as the data is concerned, it looks like a lot of people want to move back to the big cities once safety is reassured. So again, a lot of uncertainties. I want to say, let's take a look at the actual data. Let's take a look at leases being renewed. As far as we can tell, there aren't big changes. Maybe a reduction about 10 to 15% from existing leases. That doesn't seem like a sea change. And then let's see how it actually pans out once employees do start returning to work. I suspect it'll surprise even the, the smartest of pundits out there. Back to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think when you're in a pandemic uh, like this, uh, it, it can make you think you, you don't need office. But as you, you started uh, that conversation, you know, if you're just thinking about your career, um, you think you're going to advance your career faster at home with Fido uh, and the kids, or maybe if you're around the uh, the younger people, the older people, the experienced people, the the leaders in, in your business. Well, let, let me share this with you, right? I'm part of God knows how many working groups of different large companies trying to figure out the future of hybrid, right? Because a lot of folks seem to want to use it as a recruiting tool, for example, right? We're a great and light and employer. You want to work from home three to four days a week or less than that. Depending on the type of job, great. We can accommodate your needs. That's the new world, right? But I always hasten to go and say there are centripetal forces pulling you back physically to certain places, depending on the job. And so I always just pretty hard-nosed about it. And I say the call to HR these days is to track, okay, if people adopt a completely work-from-home environment versus a hybrid work environment where you show up to work two to three days a week versus a full-time back-in-the-office environment – do those three categories advance in the same way in their careers? Or do the guys who are simply go to the office most often where their bosses also are, do they end up being pulled into key meetings? Because it's you're right there and you're right you're there. out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. So, and should HR care? Should HR then go and say, oh, no, we're not promoting the hybrid guys fast enough? <laughs> we need to get on that, almost like a protected class, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we should go there and then there's a conversation. But if we are heading to a world where hybrid is presented as an equal opportunity, then shouldn't careers not take a backseat relative to the folks who show up to work five days a week? We'll see. I think it's very uncertain at this point. Back to you. Yeah, I mean, I've been studying sales all my life, and it reminds me of a of um, a saying I heard a long time ago that the the sales folks that worked at home uh, produced less than the sales people who worked in the the uh, satellite offices, and they produced less than the sales people that were in the main offices. <laughs> well, I mean, let let's just take a look at this. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up because sales is one department and job that I think will truly buck the trend of either hybrid work 
or you know the, the so-called dismal forecasts for where business travel is going. So let me share something with you about our outlook for hotel and hospitality, right? Right now, we are seeing a bit of a bounce back, especially for beach destinations, particularly during the months of February and March. Surprise, people feel a little bit safer now, and they can't wait to go take personal vacations, which leads me to wonder and speculate that I bet personal travel will make a pretty big bounce back because of healthy household balance sheets and everything that we encountered during this pandemic. I, for one, would love to visit my mother halfway around the world because I haven't seen her since this pandemic started, right? I think the bigger question is business travel, right? In other words, I'm not sure I agree with Mr. Gates, who predicted that 50% of business travel will go away. Uh, with that said, Mr. Gates's net worth is several times my own. I don't know if that means his forecasts are better than mine. But for a function like sales, to bring it back to this topic, it's what I call an unstable equilibrium, right? Which is a fancy way of saying, well, that's great if you think you can work hybrid, but the moment you lose business for a customer to someone who met with them face-to-face, -face, guess who's hopping back on a plane, yeah. right? And so I suspect that business travel might be slower when it comes to bouncing back, but for a function like sales, you know, all it takes is to start performing less or being less productive for senior management to go and say, what's not working here? Do you need to travel again? And so think about all that implies for Las Vegas, the things, uh, metros that are relatively more dependent on business travel or the conference circuit, right? What, if, what does a slow recovery mean? Okay, if Mr. Gates is wrong with a 50% forecast, what does it mean when major associations are now wondering, hey, we used to do three events a year, maybe we do two events a year and the other one virtual. Does that translate to a 33% drop in hotels for business venues? I do think that on the margin, I'm not saying that nothing will change. Absolutely not. But I think that on the margin, we need to think about, will it change in a negligible way? Or will it be so major that it will really require a rethink of the value of property, specific property classes and geographic areas. Does that make sense? It does. And it's interesting to think about it that way. I've been talking to a lot of people about some of the conventions and events that are, are in planning and almost everyone I talked, well, everyone I've talked to about it have said they are so excited. Some of them have already been to an event and they're going to events and they're really excited about it. Oh yeah. So it, absolutely. I do think that Physical events will also make a big comeback. I don't think that, if anything, I think this pandemic has heightened the need for us to communicate face-to-face -face once we start feeling safe. You know what frustrates me a whole lot in terms of day-to-day -day interactions? These masks, I, I can't smile through them, okay? No, we can't. I would love, I mean, I'm the kind of guy who gets to know the person at the other side of the cash register, especially if I see them pretty often. I simply want to be a decent human being and say good morning and hello and exchange smiles. And no matter how much I narrow my eyes, it just doesn't come across the same way. Right, right, right. I, I really wonder what development of kids under two years old, it, what, what's that doing right now when so much of their communication is nonverbal and they tend to look at faces, right? Yeah. So in other words, I, I, I do recommend taking the right precautions for everyone. If mm -hmm. masks keep you safe, absolutely make sure that you wear that, especially given CDC guidelines. 
But let's not pretend it's an optimal way of interacting as human beings, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that's what we're aiming for. I don't think what we're aiming for is, you know, a future where we're all wearing masks 50, 25% of the time. I yeah. think that future would suck. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I love greater human interaction, whether that means a return to physical conferences but then I also love spending time with my kids. And I love being close to my COVID puppy. We just got her last January. What does that mean <laughs> when we all return to work? I think we're all going to figure out what happens over the next 6 to 12 months. Yeah. Well, that, there's a lot of social isolation. I think a lot of us will be glad to get through that. I mean, when you think about, you know, to your point, if uh, you had all the riches and health and and things in the world, but you're uh, socially isolated. You, it's the people. It's the people around us that make life interesting and fun, right? Oh, it's absolutely. <laughs> ultimately, you tell me, right? I know you're in commercial real estate as a business, but ultimately, it's the people who are making decisions about deals that matter, right? It's right. it's it's how you end up communicating a sense of confidence about whether or not this deal is right for your client, about the kind of trust that your client has in you to even think about putting certain deals on their table as opposed to not. Gosh, how much, let me ask you, okay, if it's all hybrid, if it's all remote, how do you teach this to a fresh college grad? Everything we just spoke about. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's it's about relationships and, and building trust and it's just much more difficult. And you know, you try to do it on Zoom, but it's just not the same. In fact, we traveled to uh, Chicago and met four different clients uh, during COVID, and they were so appreciative uh, that we were there. They were so excited to see us. And I and I have to take, well, I have the chance to talk to you, Victor, and our audience gets to hear from you. I got to ask your opinion about the big cities, about the Chicago's, the New York's, the San Francisco. You know, a lot of these high-rise office buildings are, are empty still with the, with the tenants, you know, paying rent, most of them, but, but the employees not there. Uh, employers uh, smartly uh, don't want that danger or, uh, of the tenants, uh, their employees being there. Then the retailers at the bottom, everybody's impacted by it and the lack of events. So in the big cities, uh, some people have said these big cities will take years and years and years to recover. What do you think? Uh, no question that they've really been taking hits, right? Uh, our data suggests that for multifamily, which tends to be a property type that takes less hits during downturns, unless, of course, you're forecasting a mass extinction event, which we aren't, we recorded record declines in effective rents for San Francisco, New York, and Washington, D.C., all the big cities that you mentioned that are really taking hits because of just relative density of typical urban places, relatively high prices, which means you can't wait to get out of there if you have cheaper options that give you equivalent benefits, right? And number three, really just possible disamenities that might rise, things like violence against certain groups, things like poverty, things like crime, things like uh, drop in school quality. This has always been, I think, the pitch of cities. If you are close together and packed tightly, there are agglomeration, that's what economists call it, agglomeration benefits. The benefits to lowering transportation and communication costs and igniting the kind of creative fire of just physically being in a closed, condensed space. Okay, 
There are advantages of being in a closed, condensed space. That's literally why cities exist. And I'd argue that's why some offices exist, right? To bring us all together. I'm not sure that's going away anytime soon. In other words, as long as you feel safe, as long as you feel like the costs of commuting are worth your time because of what you get from being in a physical space, I think that those will remain benefits of large urban areas as long as the disadvantages of said urban areas do not begin increasing. So I'm thinking in terms of the 1970s or the 1980s when cities like New York were on the brink of bankruptcy and Philadelphia actually filed for bankruptcy because city finances were just pretty bad. We were moving out of cities back in the 1980s. Cities only brought sexy back, to quote the great economist Justin Timberlake, back in around the mid-1990s. That's when cities became sexy again, right? right? And so then the question becomes, will cities take a permanent hit from COVID or will they bounce back quickly? I will share some of the data that I've come across from uh, state offices that project budgets of these areas. And they're not expecting city finances to revert to pre-2019 levels till around 2023 or 2024, right? That doesn't sound like a V-shaped recovery to me. Economic activity might be picking up this year and next, but because of things like lags, you know, you, you change the assessment of a property not that quickly, and you wonder whether it's going to be a continued revision downwards over the next couple of years, which means less of a tax intake, right, for a lot of city governments. I'm wondering if that slow recovery therefore translates to higher disamenities. Will there be enough funding for cops and peace and order? Will schools get enough funding to make sure that parents still want to live in cities and send their kids to public school? If that doesn't fall off a cliff, I suspect that the recovery of cities will come faster. If they do fall off a cliff and there's just greater reason or no reason to return to higher priced areas, I suspect that the recovery of cities will be slightly slower than expected. But again, I'm not forecasting the death of the American city, right? I do think that we need to think about and be nuanced about what's driving relative decline and relative prosperity. Back to you. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm headquartered in Atlanta. And uh, as I mentioned, I visited Chicago recently and love going to New York and 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 San Francisco and and, in the excitement and the creativity and the the talent in these cities is 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 just kind of off the charts. And it's really exciting to be there. So it seems like if we're wanting to get social again and, and advance our careers and be the best we can be, we we want to get back in these cities, right? If we feel safe. Well, let me tell you something, sir. This pandemic has personally taught me that I took live performances so for granted, right? Mm-hmm. I-, I would love to gather once again in a theater or a concert hall and listen to my favorite musicians or favorite performers do their thing. And that is another advantage of cities, right? More yeah. often than not, They are that collection of just amazing cultural experiences that end up being a draw for people to come and visit. What will happen to Broadway in New York? When are they going to come back? A lot of these actors have not been earning any income for the last six to 12 months. Do you just turn that back on? Do we suddenly start? Do you feel comfortable sitting in a Broadway theater? Do we now need to sit one seat apart? Gosh, I don't know. 
And so the sooner that comes back, I think the sooner cities will become vibrant again. But it is dependent once again on just that collection of cultural and other experiences that remain a big draw for big metro areas. Which performer do you want to see live when this <laughs> is over? Let me ask you. Well, actually, Saturday, uh, I have live entertainment on my dock on the lake at Lake Lanier. And we did that during COVID and a lot of boats would come in the cove. And to your point, everybody was so excited to see live entertainment. And, uh, and, and, they did, and I sang a few songs and people didn't leave. I was amazed. Wait, you did? You sing. That's amazing. No, yeah. but let me tell you, this is the same conversation we have about things like webinars and recorded events, right? Hmm. Why listen to the live performance when you probably sound better and remastered with perfect tone, right? <laughs> on a right. CD. Gosh, right. do people still buy CDs? Or, or, or you could like download MP4s on Apple Music or Spotify. Why? Because live performances are inherently human. Right? We wanna we want the emotion to show. We want that chance that Michael strikes a wrong note, except he doesn't. <laughs> and then we clap, right? If it's always gonna be perfect if you listen to just a recording. But yeah. that, that that's not it. The point is we are human, and that that slight chance of imperfection, I think, draws us the live perfect. Why why not have a robot dance ballet? They will mm -hmm. always execute the moves perfectly, but right. there is a human side to it. And we applaud that, a, a perfect performance, a performance that conveys emotion in a way that listening to the radio doesn't. I, I mean, I miss it. I miss it. And, and I think depending on where that's located, that will determine whether a geography bounces back faster or not. Same discussion with restaurants, right? Mm -hmm. Why not just order stuff for delivery? Why not just microwave it or cook it yourself? Well, I don't know. There is an amazing experience of just having a world-class chef prepare a dish that delights, that titillates, that yeah. surprises. And, oh, gosh, I missed all of this. I missed right. all of this. Yeah, I, I enjoy it. someone telling me, like a waiter, that uh, very good choice, Mr. Bull. <laughs> right? Thank you. I mean, Thank you. I, I, all of that, like add it all up. and. What will the future look like? Will all of our waiters and waitresses and servers wear masks forever? Forever. I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. So I, I hope not, but we'll see. Well, Victor, what would you leave our audience with to think about uh, related to um, the rebound or, or commercial real estate or uh, impact of any of these kind of tax increases? Uh, what would you leave our audience with moving forward? Uh, let's focus on the glass half full. I know that's a very strange thing for an economist to say. Usually we're stereotyped as dismal scientists. But let me tell you, the forecasts for GDP growth this year and next are numbers I have not seen in my entire forecasting career. The IMF is forecasting the global economy to grow at 6 plus percent with the U.S. obviously being a big tail that wags that dog. That number for the IMF is something they've never forecasted in their 40-year career or history. And so let's focus on the glass half full. I'm not saying everything is perfect. I, I, I'd even want to say that we might be growing too fast. That's why we're talking about things like inflation and overheating again. But I think the next couple of years are going to keep creative, committed people really busy with amazing opportunities 
almost like, wow. I mean, we were always just projecting a 2% growth rate for the U.S. economy steady state. Mm -hmm. uh, far be it for me to go and say, wow, we, we, we needed a pandemic to kick the growth rates up. But that's kind of what it's doing, right? Well, what if we remain in that 2% trajectory for the next few years? Now we've got a bounce back. Again, we can still kind of mismanage this, so let's not mismanage it. Yeah. Now we've got a bounce back we haven't seen in 50 years and hold on for the ride. I'd say take advantage of every opportunity out there if you can, and hopefully we get out of this long pandemic tunnel sooner rather than later. Back to you. Great. Well, I'm excited now, Victor. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much. And I, I, just do something for me. Can you let me know when your next live performance will be? Because I'd love to listen to it if it's streamed live. All right. Will do. Victor Kalanog, thank you for joining us, sir. Appreciate it. Talk to you All again right. soon. And Bye -bye. thank you for joining us around the country. Uh, please let us know uh, what you think. And uh, we appreciate uh, you sharing the show. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh. And join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. If you appreciate the show, think about the opportunity to do business or refer business to our sponsors. Bull Realty. For customized asset and occupancy solutions, visit bullrealty.com. Commercial Agent Success Strategies. For incredible commercial agent training, visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Core.green. Use ION technology to create a safer environment for your real estate. Visit core.green. For more commercial real estate intel, forecasts, and strategies, visit CREshow.com.